We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. What if we create technology that will actually allow us to change our own desires? GDP breaks down when you can change your preferences. The uniqueness of GDP measurements rely entirely on fixed preferences. And if you can, if you can just say, well, you know what? I used to want uh, to have a giant mansion and a yacht and be really high status and I don't know, date Victoria's Secret models or whatever those people like to do. And like, now I'm just going to switch it. So you know what I really want? To pet rabbits all day. <laughs> That's how I started out. I always <laughs> just wanted a fluffy bunny. Like, anyway, the point is that like our GDP measurements and productivity measurements are utterly unprepared to deal with a world where we can just want what we've got. You know, like, um, of, of course, the, the dumbass version of this is just Molly, right? The dumbass version of this is you put a little powder in your mouth and then you're just like, hmm, great. Wow, you're massaging my hand. This is the most incredible thing. Anyway... Robert Gordon didn't think about that. <laughs> Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Noah, uh, welcome back. Excited to chat today. Hey. Uh, last week, Mark Andreessen dropped his manifesto, uh, Techno Optimism, and you uh, also wrote uh, a couple pieces on on why you're also a techno optimist, but you have uh, you have some overlap and you have some differences. So maybe let's start with uh, reactions to the to, to the manifesto. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I'm a big fan. I think that you know during the uh, during the last like you know eight or nine years, we've gotten this uh, we've gotten into this social mode of you know critique, criticism of everything. You know, everything is, everything is bad. Um, you know, denunciation is just uh, what we're going to do to everything. And, and everything is dangerous. And, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, Jeff Yang, said, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen's manifesto has demonstrated that techno-optimism is a dangerous ideology and we need to find some way to combat it or something like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like... You know, it was just, just let people say they like stuff, you know, um, let, let people just be enthusiastic about stuff. And that's what I like about the, the EAC people, you know, there's, there's not a heck of a lot of, of substance to EAC, you know, those people are my friends. There's, it's, you know, like a lot of pictures of space stations and just like, you know, picture yourself here, like, you know, we are gods and stuff like that. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's a direct successor to the extropians of the nineties, which I was too young to know about. So I've only read about them in articles and heard about them from people like Kevin Kelly and uh, Tim O'Reilly who were there and met them. But basically they're just extremely enthusiastic about technology and feel that like we are living in this age of accelerating technology will lead to sci-fi stuff. We need to accelerate and claim our destiny as blah, blah. That's so great. Like, um, I love this enthusiasm and this and this optimism, and I really enjoyed Mark's piece. And that doesn't mean I, you know, agree with everything in the piece. I think that my own writings kind of uh, articulated what I disagree with, where I where I differ from him. But ultimately, I think it's a good thing to get manifestos like this. This is our culture needs this, you know. And this idea of everything is a dangerous ideology, everything is a culture war that needs to be combated. We need movements in the streets to combat it and resistance and shut up. <laughs> Can we dispense with that and move on to a better time in America? Okay, so let, let's start with what you agree with. You know, why are you a techno optimist? And then, then we'll get to you know where you disagree or where you have slight difference of opinion. Right. So, I mean, I think that viewed broadly, what technology is humanism. Uh, technology or techno optimism is humanism. You know, the, the idea that uh, we should discover more stuff. We because discovering more stuff empowers humanity. Now, it doesn't always empower individuals, right? And this is an important, crucial, in fact, distinction. Technology does not always empower individuals. So, for example, digital surveillance technology, right, where you have the government able to just watch you all the time as China's government watches people all the time, you know, because it 
you know, gets data from all the web cameras everywhere in the whole uh, country, that's obviously lessening individual human choice, right? Individual human freedom. You have a social credit score. So if you, you know, are a mixed martial artist and you demonstrate that MMA is better than, uh, you know, some sort of, um, you know, I don't know, weaponized Tai Chi by defeating a Tai Chi master in some highly publicized bout. And then, you know, you, the, the government basically blackballs you as happened to the guy who did that. Well, that's, that's obviously reducing human freedom or reducing human choice. So technology is not automatically a libertarian force. It's not automatically an individualistic force. What it is instead is a force that gives society more collective choices. So when you have a society choose to go authoritarian with technology and use technology to become big brother, that is a collective choice of society, right? The, the, when I say collective, I don't mean that every, it's a consensus thing like at your college co-op where everybody just decided like, oh yeah, we'll all have a surveillance state. No, that's not what I mean by collective. I mean that the overall organization of human society, blah, 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 you know, came out with this outcome. But, um, you know, democratic societies obviously come out with very different outcomes. And so, you know, like things like letting everyone have a refrigerator in their house. That's just the collective choice of society that leads to more individual freedom, more individual choice. So, you, so societies have a, a collective choice about whether or not to use technology to give individuals in those societies more individual choice. The reason I'm a techno-optimist, the reason I think that discovering more technology is good is that, um, is that I believe that human society will over time tend to do better I think that empowering humanity as a whole ultimately will lead to the empowerment of human individuals more than it will lead to the opposite. I think that the 1984 scenarios will be less common and less important than the, you know, just sort of general increases in standard of living and, you know, human independence and things. I think that um, Francis Fukuyama will prevail in some sense. Uh, you know, even in the totalitarian countries, you see you know, the idea of like checkpoints, you can't move between the checkpoints, you can't drive your car or between the checkpoints are, are rare, right? It's it's used only in extreme situations or um, the idea that you can't like shop for TVs online or, or all these things, you know, even even the all the, the massive attempts that China uses to control social media, even that is, um, you know, people still do a lot of talking on social media and during zero COVID, the sensors were just overwhelmed. You know, the, the Chinese sense is just lost. So I think that overall, um, I, I sort of have faith or, or, or maybe faith is the wrong word, but expectation that greater social choice will lead to greater individual choice and freedom and happiness and certainly greater riches and wealth and lack of starvation and more education and, you know, all those good things, uh, you know, more happy people, I think. And so ult because, because ultimately human society is for the benefit of humans. Uh, on, in some sense. And anti, you know, sort of anti-humanist societies, totalitarian societies tend to flame out. Um, so that's, that's one, um, one reason why I agree with Mark. I think the other reason, the other thing I agree with Mark about is that um, not nearly enough technology gets invented. Technology has lots of space for acceleration and improvement from our current rates of innovation from our current amount of, of, technology that we have. There's lots more out there. And in every age, you see uh, stagnationists who basically say, okay, we've discovered all the important stuff. You know, now it's just cleaning up a few little things. Uh, and so far, they've always been wrong. Um, we've always found some new important stuff to discover. And uh, that doesn't mean it's, you know, it, it may have gotten more expensive to discover some of those things. You may have to have a big, well-funded lab instead of just some random guy in his garage tinkering with some little plants or something like, or, you know, bread mold or whatever, like you would in the past, right? Um, although that's not actually how penicillin got invented. But okay, so but the point is that um, innovation is getting more expensive, maybe. But at the same time, um, our societies are getting wealthier. And so we're better able to afford the expense of that increasing, uh, you know, of sustaining innovation. And, um, and so I think that there, there's this fundamental property of technology, right, which is that the people who invent it, don't reap the full benefits of what they invent. The full benefits accrue to other people. And this is why Marx says that technology is philanthropy. Uh, but notice that we don't have nearly enough philanthropy 
in the world, right? We wouldn't rely on philanthropy to like create a welfare state or run the government, right? We wouldn't rely on philanthropy to like keep the roads up kept or the schools, you know? And so, so we wouldn't rely on philanthropy for that because people just don't have enough of incentive to do that philanthropy. And the same way, technology is philanthropy because the people who invent it don't reap all the benefits. The benefits are reaped by people who copy the technology, people who use the technology downstream and things like that. You know, just ideas are in the air. Your idea gets out, someone else uses it, and you don't get paid, right? And that lack of incentive to invent is, is a big reason. Well, it, it's, a, it's a problem we have to overcome, right? I mean, it's a thing we overcome. We have the patent system and government research funding and, you know, um, tax credits for R&D for corporations. And these are all mechanisms that we use to overcome the natural incentive problem of technological innovation, which is that people, the inventors don't reap the full benefits. So we're trying to give them some benefits, uh, you know, some benefits, and maybe not the full benefits. We're trying to give them some benefits to get them to do more innovation. And it's not enough. You know, it's not, there, there's, there, we haven't fully internalized the externality of innovation. We have, you know, and so, and because of that, we, th that's a very good reason to believe that there's still lots of stuff out there to discover because we just don't have sufficient incentive to go discover it. You know, we, we, um, we, the fact that, that our innovation system start, starts off broken, right? And it starts off broken because of this externality and we have to fix it and build it up, you know, from, from a, a broken base. Um, that's a reason to believe that there's still lots of undiscovered stuff out there that we haven't had the incentive to go discover. And so I think that there's just so much more out there. So, so the, the two big things I agree with Mark about are number one, in general, more technology is good for humankind. I'm a humanist. And so I believe that humans will benefit from accelerated innovation. And number two, there's lots more left out there to discover. We haven't uh, reached sort of the end of, of innovation. We haven't picked all the low hanging fruit. Yeah. So, well, just on that last point, you know, Robert Gordon famously has a book, uh, you know, I, I believe it's called The Rise and Fall of Economic Growth. Um, and he, um, he he makes the argument, I believe that uh, here he, he credits the the sort of fall in the, in the growth rate uh, due to um, we picked the low hanging fruit and, and, and sort of technological growth is just or economic growth is just harder now because we've we've picked the, you know, the stuff that, that's easier to do. And, and now it's just harder. Um, you know, he, he gestures at some other reasons as well, but I think he, he says that that's, that's the biggest reason. Well, one is my reading of Gordon correct. And two, are you less sympathetic of that? Your reading of Gordon is correct. And I am less sympathetic to that. And the reason is because suppose you were to take a Robert Gordon style argument and make it in the, um, you know, around 1870 and people did, you can read, you know, people were like, all the machines have been invented. We invented the steam engine. That's that was the big one, guys. You know, and so then um, nobody had any idea that electricity would be such a big deal, right? And nobody really understood that the internal combustion engine would be such a big deal. And those are sort of uh, th those plus, you know, public uh, water sanitation stuff. Those are the the big um, and, and like antibiotics. No one really believed. No one really knew in 1870 that we'd invent something that could basically clobber every bacterial disease on the planet, right? No one knew that. And no one knew that harnessing, you know, people knew about electricity. There was, there's Maxwell's equations, I guess, were written in the late 1800s. Um, but people, you know, people didn't have any idea, you know, Ben Franklin had flown his kite a long time ago, right? Um, people knew that electricity was a thing. They had no idea that it could just create this easily transferable power that could power all these things. You know, no one could imagine this microphone, this computer screen in, in 1870, and the innovations, the, the, the big general purpose technologies that Gordon talks about, uh, you know, in, in the rise and fall of American growth are like electricity, internal combustion engine, public sanitation, blah, blah, blah. He's right that those were big, important things. And he's right that uh, there was a there was a definitely a lull in productivity growth after we sort of mined out a lot of the possibilities of those things and fully exploited those things. But the thesis is that there's no other such things out there. And you have to have a scientific reason for believing that. And um, obviously, there's only one electromagnetism in the, in the world, right? There's only one such force. Harnessing the strong nuclear force is not going to help us anytime soon because the strong nuclear force is very short range. The weak nuclear force is just, I don't know, weak. Um, but then 
and and gravity only works one way. It doesn't have a repulsion. So so there's not really a lot of uh, we can't repeat something just like electricity, right? But electricity wasn't just like anything that happened before. You know, there was nothing like that before. There's no analog to electricity in like 1820, right? There's there's just no analog. Steam power with steam drivetrains were just not the same. You know, you I guess you could transfer power from in like in one belt through a factory and stuff like that. But it just wasn't it wasn't the same as electricity. And um, in fact, steam engines themselves were were that was very different than any of the te big technological innovations that have come before, which were mostly about farming and construction, right? New ways to build materials, new ways to like pull plows were basically like the horse collar. That was a big deal. Or like agriculture. Before agriculture, there was nothing like agriculture. That was the first and only time that there was anything like finding the fact that you could grow plants in the ground. Like these general purpose technologies are not predictable. Otherwise we would have them already. And so someday we, we, we may run out of general purpose technologies. In fact, Robert Gordon might be right. And we already may already have, but I'm betting against it. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. You know, lots of people talk about how computerization and the internet was, uh, you know, was such a bust in terms of productivity. It generated maybe 10, 15 years of rapid productivity growth and then kind of petered out again. There was this like little bump and then it petered out. Well, I would say that we're just at the beginning of that because electricity didn't make its, its, um, its full productivity impact felt for many years after it was invented because entrepreneurs and this is, the economists have, have documented this and talk about this all the time. Entrepreneurs had to figure out how to use electricity to revamp their production processes. And the key innovation actually was to have small workstations for manufacturing where you'd like pull the, the, the thing from one station to another and work on it independently instead of just having, you know, this sort of like drivetrain. So when you, when you look at the old Mickey Mouse cartoons from like the 1930s or 40s or whatever about, about industrial stuff, it's all this one giant like conveyor belt and Mickey Mouse is trying to escape from the conveyor belt or whatever, right? And you always see that, that you've seen that, right? The escape from the conveyor belt. Yep. Like, and there's always like a stamping machine and it's going to crush you and burn you and you, you've got to escape. But that is how they did it before electricity. So after electricity, what they instead did that, that giant, that giant conveyor belt was giant and continuous because it was driven by one big steam boiler at the center of the factory. And, um, with electricity, they figured out, no, actually we can just set electricity, electric power is so easy to route to anywhere you want. We can just set up all these little workstations instead of this giant conveyor belt. We can just take the piece over to another workstation and add something to it over here and then carry it over here. And then, um, and so that was a huge innovation. After that, you see productivity from electric powered factories really start to skyrocket. And that took decades. And I think with the internet, we're just now seeing how to do fragmented production of service tasks. So, you know, if you go back six years, five years, right? Everybody did service tests by going into an office and talking to other people for the same hours per day. They would physically go into the same office and talk to other people. And, um, and that's how, you know, office work got accomplished. And now since the pandemic, you're starting to see finally productivity improvements from, uh, from remote work technology. And Nick Bloom uh, has documented this. Um, and we're starting to fragment a lot of these production processes. And I see an analogy to how electricity allowed us to fragment the physical production process and increase productivity by doing things in little packets, little distributed packets, instead of in one big, you know, sort of concatenated uh, uh, thing that everyone worked on the same conveyor belt. And so I think that that's one thing. Another thing, obviously, is AI, cliche to say, you know, GPT is going to write our emails for us and do our boring shit for us. Uh, I think that that, you know, that's another one. Um, but then also, I think that we've consistently seen that um, energy per capita, energy use per capita has been an important input into physical technologies. So Peter Thiel famously said that we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got um, how many characters Twitter used to have? 140 characters. And, uh, and then... Um, you know, because digital technologies had replaced physical technologies as the, the sort of engine of innovation. But there was really a reason for that, right? It was, it was the fact that after the internal combustion engine and oil, which allowed us to exploit oil, right? This, this huge natural resource of oil that before it was very difficult to exploit. You couldn't burn it in a boiler, right? It wasn't like coal. 
you had to uh, you had to invent the internal combustion engine, which was a harder thing than a coal boiler. And so you um, uh, so so then we we uh, when after oil, where do we go? Right. A lot of people thought we were going to go to nuclear. You know, we're just going to have fission power everywhere. But there were important reasons why that couldn't happen. Um, everybody talks about regulation, but there's really key reasons why no one ever put a nuclear engine in your car. Right. Um, there's just, there, that's just a huge safety risk to put nuclear power in your car. I mean, like a nuclear submarine is the only thing we really do or aircraft carrier, right? Submarine and aircraft carrier. We have nuclear powered stuff. We have plants for nuclear powered spacecraft that we could do if we want, but, um, to put it in your car, to, to use it to supercharge transportation, construction machinery and everything, you know, that, that's, um, that's actually something they do in foundation. If you read foundation, the first sort of important, uh, technology they get is miniaturized nuclear and which they call nucleics, um, which now means something else, but then, uh, you had miniaturized little nuclear batteries that you could use for everything. And that, and that at the time was, it was a hope that people had, and it wasn't regulation that killed that. It was, it was just the infeasibility of, of that. And um, we may at some point get portable nuclear technology. It will just be something other than, than that. So after that, we, we really uh, stopped advancing in terms of energy. And even, even in the countries that did go with nuclear power, like France went with mostly nuclear power, it's like France's electricity was not that much cheaper than other countries, right? It was more, it was greener, right? It was, it was more immune to Russian supply cutoffs, but it was not cheaper. And so, so nuclear did not produce the bonanza that we expected. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, all you nuclear stands out there. It's not going to anytime soon. Fission will not. Fusion someday will, right? Fusion will be amazing and it will be great. Uh, but fission is just, um, you know, you're, can I, can I go on a little rant here about fission? Okay. So the point is that, uh, when I was, when I was a kid, I watched this, this cartoon called Robotech and you had this spaceship powered by this immense energy source called protoculture. And it was so important that everyone would go to galactic war just to get their hands on protoculture. And then my friends and I were sitting around in, in, I think junior high school thinking like, okay, well, how do you get the energy from protoculture? Like, how does it actually transfer the energy to, to the spaceship? And I said, well, okay, so first you get the protoculture to boil water to make steam. <laughs> it was just this like ancient technology, but that is how nuclear fission works. You boil water to get steam you 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 knock rocks together you knock like heavy rocks together so that their neutrons hit each other and so they get hot and then you use that heat to boil water to make steam to turn a turbine like a freaking coal boiler in the 1800s that's what nuclear power is and that you know whereas an internal combustion engine was a new way to get the get the power out it wasn't just a new like a new kind of rock to get the power out, right? It was a new machinery to transfer the energy from the rock to the thing. And that's what nuclear did not provide. But oil did provide it, right? The internal combustion engine was an advance in, in energy extraction technology, not just the, the thing itself, which is why when, when, you know, people who think we need to use mainly nuclear for stuff talk about energy density, I'm like, my God, man, you're talking about the energy density of the rock itself, not the density of the giant thing, which is this huge tower that looms over the city. Like, that's the actual density you should be talking about. This huge thing required to, like, get the energy from that little rock. It's the extraction machinery. And new sources of power are direct to electric. And this allows us to... Um, this allows us to convert energy uh, from the sun with a solar panel to electricity or, or a wind tower or whatever direct to electricity and then store that in a battery. That is, and, and battery technology is just advancing incredibly. Toyota just said it's going to start mass production of solid state batteries. Oh my God. Like nobody even noticed um, that would, if Toyota is not bullshitting and they may be, but they've been working on it for a long time. If they're, if they're not bullshitting the solid, solid state batteries, if you can make them cheap, will just kick the crap out of anything else because they're just like so compact and small and awesome. And, um, battery technology is an advance in energy extraction. And the idea of these, these power sources that create electricity directly, instead of having to go through a steam boiler, right. Or even a, an internal combustion chamber, though. 
that is an advance in energy extraction technology. And so in addition to digital technologies, like finally realizing the, the potential of the internet for distributed productivity and AI, those two digital revolutions are underway. But I think that the energy, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that solar power has gotten so incredibly cheap and batteries have made it so easy to move solar power around, to move electric power around because you have this direct electricity power. Um, that is a huge technological revolution. And that is something that Robert Gordon just did not even consider, right? He's talking about the internal combustion engine. Well, what about ultra cheap solar power with ultra cheap solid state batteries or, you know, whatever next generation stuff that allows you to just grab energy from the sky, move it directly to electrical charge and hold it in this supercharged thing and put that in a drone, in an appliance, in a car, in a train, in anything you want, a boat, a spacecraft, whatever you want. Um, you can just put a battery in it, a stove, like my friend's company, you know, is making the, the battery powered stoves and appliances. Like you can put it anywhere you want. And Robert Gordon didn't even think about that, right? He was writing a few years before that revolution happened and he wasn't even thinking about it. And what aren't we thinking about today? You know, what, what is the next thing that we are not thinking about? Uh, you know, um, and, and there's possible innovations that even change the meaning of what it means to produce value. So for example, right now we have Neuralink and some other companies creating computer brain interfaces. It's really easy to get information out of a brain. It's very hard to put information into a brain, <laughs> um, but we're gonna figure it out eventually and much mad science and horror will be done on the way and then people's brains will be hijacked and we'll have zombies and mind control and all those bad things. <laughs> but remember, I'm a techno-optimist. So I think ultimately society will figure out the way you know, ways to make sure that, that doesn't happen much, uh, you know, except in totalitarian regimes. And, um, anyway, we're going to get that. And what if we could just create, A, what if we could create virtual worlds much better than any VR headset where you can actually feel and smell and experience and blah, 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 right? And AI can generate it all. And you can just live in a fantasy world and you can be, you know, like um, Harry Potter or whatever, whatever you millennials like younger millennials uh, with your Harry Potter fandom. Um, you know, in my generation, we read the wheel of time and yes, it sucked, but we read it anyway. Um, so then, but yeah, so, so we'll be able to create infinite fantasy worlds for ourselves. And what's the value of that? The, that, that won't even be easily measurable because what are you going to use like fantasy bucks? to buy it. There'll be like energy credits that you use to buy like server time or whatever in real life, GPUs, I don't know. But it'll be hard to measure. And uh, what if we create technology that will actually allow us to change our own desires? That's something that like, I worked on an econ paper where we were trying to value the data and we were just like, there's, there's no unique way to value the change in utility. Like there's no, GDP breaks down when you can change your preferences. GDP relies, the uniqueness of GDP measurements rely entirely on fixed preferences. And if you can, if you can just say, well, you know what? I used to want uh, to have a giant mansion and a yacht and be really high status and I don't know, date Victoria's Secret models or whatever those people like to do. And like, now I'm just going to switch it. So you know what I really want? To pet rabbits all day. <laughs> that's how I started out. But, <laughs> you know, You've that's- already done that. I've already done that. I didn't, you know, like, I <laughs> never wanted to date Victoria's Secret models. I always just wanted a fluffy bunny. Like, <laughs> Anyway, the point is that like, what if you can change, you, you know, it's, um, have you ever heard that song soak up the sun by Sheryl Crow? Yeah. Should we have a podcast where I just like sing things? <laughs> yeah, I just like free. sing, like, I'm gonna soak up the sun, gonna tell it's everyone. Anyway, point is that she has this line. It's not getting what you want. It's wanting what you've got. Mm. Our GDP measurements and productivity measurements are utterly unprepared to deal with a world where we can just want what we've got. You know, like, um, of, of course, the, the dumbass version of this is just Molly, right? The dumbass version of this is you put a little powder in your mouth and then you're just like, hmm, great. Wow, you're massaging my hand. This is the most incredible thing. Wow, I'm eating a radish. This is the most incredible thing. You know, and so that's like what, what MDMA does for your brain for like a few minutes. And then you have like three days when you're just depressed as hell and you want to die. So don't do it. But especially if you're prone to depression. But the point is... What if you could just do that sustainably? <laughs> you know, what if you could just have sustainable Molly and you could just 
Um, you know, there's some there's some old kids in the hall movie from like the 90s when I was a kid about this by Brain Candy, I think it's called. Anyway, um, it, and it just destroys society. And maybe it will destroy society. Maybe, you know, all we want is just to sit there petting fluffy bunnies. And then if we have robots to cater to all our fluffy bunny needs and, and magical brain computer interfaces to rewire our brain so that that's all we want, maybe that's the end point of humanity. And we're done. We've reached paradise because we found out that we already had paradise because we just had to change our brains uh, to, to consider the current world to be paradise. Anyway, Robert Gordon didn't think about that. All right. So that's, the, I'm ranting because I'm ranting about things that Robert Gordon didn't think about and that he could have thought about had he talked to my PhD advisor, the economist Miles Kimball, who thinks about this stuff all day and is even crazier than I am. So anyway. <laughs> who, uh, who I also had uh, at some point in, 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 in Michigan. Uh, uh, so shout out to, to oh, of to, course, to, that's right. He was the Econ 102 professor of yeah. Econ 102. Yes. He's our progenitor yes. of this podcast. Yes. His his spirit yeah, lives. Have him at some point. And like a lot of these crazy <laughs> things that I'm saying, yes, we absolutely should. Yes, Econ 102 reunion. I love it. Anyway, so Robert <laughs> Gordon can't predict the future, and he's just like predicting the past. Yeah. Well, well, side note on that, we have an upcoming podcast. I believe it's launching next week with. Uh, you know, Packy McCormick and, and Julia DeWall, uh, it's, it's a season on nuclear and you're, you're a guest for one of the episodes. We'll re-release -re it on, on this feed as well. Uh, so just wanted to, to plug that listeners, stay tuned. Um, well, just on that note. So if it's less about low hanging fruit, what do you think is the best explainer of the sort of fall in, uh, in, in growth rates? Is it sort of government dysfunction? Is it culture? Is it, what do you think are the if you had to pie chart kind of the, the reason, you know, sort of the reasons why we've had a slowdown, what do you think? Well, just end of, end of cheap oil, um, stagnation of energy technology. It's just, the, have you seen the Henry Adams curve? It's this, this curve of energy use per capita. It's like up, 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 up. And like, and so, you know, the, the website, what the fuck happened in 1971 and my eternal, my eternal like anger at this website will be that it was actually 1973. Otherwise, the website's good. It's 1973 because it was the oil shock. And so if you look at the Henry Adams curve, that's when you we roll off the curve, right? We were like, you know, like basically human history is like we start out like, oh, I'm I'm a monkey with a bow. Uh, like, you know, I shoot you. That was like our history for many, many years. And then we're like, oh, I can plant plants in the ground energy from plants. And then we go on for several thousands of years and have like kings and knights and other horrible things that we later romanticized for like thousands and thousands of years. And then we, um, and then at some point we were like, Oh, coal, I could burn that and use it to move a thing. Wow. Now, like I'm, I'm early modern, you know, early industrial humanity and then things are better. And then we're like a little ways after that, we were like, Oh, whoa, I could burn oil in a, in a thing and then, and then, you know, have cars and planes and things like that. That's amazing. Um, and, 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 you know, gas powered leaf blowers, which are really important. And then, uh, and, and then I can have electricity to move the power around and stuff like that. And we're like, whoa, energy. And then in 1973, uh, OPEC is like, <laughs> you thought you had cheap energy, but you don't anymore. And then <laughs> physical innovation craters after that. All the stuff where we had the, we could easily, cheaply just, we, we made all these new appliances like, oh, now you have a fridge, now you have an oven, now you have this, blah, 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 because we got so much cheap energy. Um, now that, that process comes crashing down. And um, after we stopped getting more and more cheap energy, uh, it became harder to generate productivity gains. And so we said, okay, so instead we're just going to go do some other kind of innovation. We happen to have this computer revolution and nothing, you know, that's, that's low energy. We can just run these server racks pretty cheaply, whatever. I guess we didn't have server racks yet, but um, we had uh, something like computer chips and we can, we can run stuff really cheaply. So let's do, let's do computer innovation instead of doing right. You know, writing all these paper spreadsheets in an office, let's just do Excel, right. Instead of um, writing, you know, a whole bunch of like memos and whatever, let's just use email. And so we, we, we reaped the productivity gains and from people say that it's only like the late nineties and early two thousands, but really this productivity boom begins in the late eighties. And like, if you look at a broader set of measurements, it's really from about 1987 to 2004, 1987 through 2004, that this productivity boom happens. 
So it's, it's not quite two decades. And then you see productivity just goes back up and it goes almost to the like post-war, uh, you know, levels. And then, then it flattens out again after 2004. So 2005, it's like, suddenly it's like, Oh, productivity stops. <laughs> and then, um, there, the, what hasn't shown up in the productivity statistics at all is phones, um, which are, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I know the smartphone is the new sun. And we had a whole decade where like everybody who made smartphone apps and social mobile, blah, 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 got really rich. And a lot of the people listening to the podcast got rich on that. And I'm happy that you got rich, you know, so that you're able to have a nice ball pit in your house or whatever you enjoy, <laughs> whatever rich people like now, I guess it's, it's, it's not dating Victoria's secret models. That's very the Gen X-y. Like what do, what do rich, like younger millennials want? What, what does a rich, like 33 year old want these days? Like, tell me, you're, tell me, <laughs> tell me, uh, younger millennial, what do they want? Um, I think they want to be able to go on private jets. Um, or net jets or, or buy their own someday. I, yeah. Got it. Got Efficiency, got it. like be able to fly at any, any time, not have to deal with bullshit. Um, I think it's less about being flashy and more, I mean, obviously being on a private jet is a, uh, what's it called a flex. Um, so I, I think like subtle ways to flex. Basically. A flex. Yeah. Cause like, honestly, my, my, younger millennial, like rich friends just like li mostly live a pretty Spartan existence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the cliche of the CEO who like sleeps on a mattress on the yeah, floor and like a, yeah, yeah. in a bare little bedroom or whatever. That's real. I've seen that mattress. That's real. Yeah. Anyway, whatever rich people want. Um, the, I, I am a skeptic about the actual benefits of the, the smartphone. Hmm. I think that the smartphone has improved the world. On net, it has not, you know, destroyed society and, you know, just created a dystopia. Uh, but I believe that the benefits are, are much, much smaller than the private returns would indicate. I think it's, smartphones have had lots of negative things such as the death of privacy, allowing universal tracking, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, social isolation that came from social media. And the fact that, you you know, a lot of the things that, you know, political, political disruption. I think there were just a ton of negative externalities of the smartphone that we haven't really reckoned with. And it was just so fun and addictive. It's this, the, the ultimate toy of the smartphone that, and, and so many of the, the, you know, younger millennial generation got rich off that, right? Um, that it's very hard. It's very hard to confront some of the drawbacks of that. So, so in terms of me being techno-optimist, I'm like, yes, the smartphone improved society by a little bit on net, we're a little better off with smartphones than we were without smartphones, but only a little because of so many drawbacks. And so I'm, uh, you know, call me a techno pessimist about smartphones, but I think that they're, they're overrated. They're not, they're not bad. They're just overrated. And so, uh, but now I think that the technologies that are now being rolled out, including, you know, AI, remote work, robotics, solar batteries, mRNA, synthetic biology, drones, et cetera. Well, okay, drones are going to be mostly used for war. But um, I think that uh, mo these technologies being rolled out are going to make, mostly are going to make human life a lot better than the generation of technologies we had before. That the 2005 through 2019 innovation wave, that, that decade and a half of innovation was actually uh, disappointing and the, the, you know, the real good work was going on sort of underneath behind the scenes stuff that wasn't ready to be rolled out yet, like MRNA or, you know, like remote, like video conferencing technology, things like that. All the, the AI, of course, that was the decade when like AI was sort of bubbling up, starting to bubble up uh, with the first generation of AI, um, which we've now back, we've now retroactively decided to call the old generation ML, right? Now, now generative AI is just becoming AI. Anyway, so then... I think that a lot of the, the important work w during that decade and a half was being done on the things that actually would make a difference, but a lot of the things that were being rolled out that had been invented in the late 90s and 2000s that were now were commercialized in the 2010s were, were relatively disappointing. And so, but you know what? Things go through waves. There's, there, it's not a constant. It's not this one hump. Right, because the 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 period of like 1987 to 2004 shows that you can reaccelerate. And sure, it didn't last forever, but it shows that it's not a monotonic thing. 
you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's a little fly in the ointment of the stagnationist because you look at this bump in growth, this decade and a half bump in productivity growth. And you're like, okay, well, except for that, we're stagnating except for that bump, you know, and, but then we're like, there'll be another bump and then another bump. And of, of such small bumps, one, you know, many large bumps are made. And so I think that, um, we, I, I'm optimistic about the suite of technologies that's being rolled out now and its ability to increase not just measured productivity, but human happiness and just improve human society in general, um, more than the last generation of, of innovation did. I, I think we're in a good place right now. Yeah. So let's, um, let's get overview. Let, let's segue to where you, where you disagree or where you feel, feel differently. Why don't you, uh, share some of your, your disagreements with the, the well, you know, Mark is, Mark is very, uh, libertarian, right? He's, he's very much believes in the, the veneration that, that doesn't mean he's like a libertarian in the sense of not wanting a welfare state. He would like a welfare state. He would like to take care of the poor people. Um, he would like, you know, but, um, and, and, and at some level, he recognizes the need for like environmental sustainability, even though he puts sustainability in quotes as, as, a, as an enemy force. But ultimately, he, believe, he, he believes in the sort of valor of the independent inventor and thinks of the, uh, you know, the state and, and many organs of society as trying to restrain the, the heroic inventor, the John Galt figure, right? And... This makes sense because it really describes, you know, much of that describes his own experience. He was not, you know, like he, he just, he and, and, and one other guy built like the web browser, <laughs> invented the, invented one of the basic pillars of the internet and then made a company on it and made a bunch of money and then became venture capitalists and helped other people who did the same thing. So it's the story of Mark's life that, you know, this, this Mark is John Galt, right? He's John Galt. <laughs> And then, um, but instead of moving to like a little, you know, uh, a secluded valley or whatever with a whole bunch of other inventors, he, he moved to Menlo Park. Um, but he is, he is basically that. But, but the point is that that's, that is not the only way that the innovation happens. And, and with, if, if all we have is that, we'll be a poorer, slower progressing society. We will, we will not take full advantage of the potential of technological progress if that is what we mainly, if, if, if we just have that. We need that. It's good. It's important. But it's, it's only one of the things we need. And so another thing we need is, uh, you know, government-funded labs, right? Like government-funded lab. If, if you like the nuclear age, where do you think that came from? Government-funded labs. Um, even Mark got to start working in a government-funded lab, right? When he was when he was doing that web browser, he was initially working in a government funded lab. So there's, uh, you know, mRNA uh, was like the the mRNA efforts like Moderna and BioNTech were absolutely funded by venture capital for many years. But they were also funded by like the NIH and NSF, like though there was massive amount of government backing that went into that technology. And then when it came time to deploy the technology in the pandemic, uh, you know, BARDA. Was, was the key uh, government agency that did purchasing guarantees and helped arrange supply chain things and blah, 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 and basically really accelerated the process of, of rolling out that mRNA technology in a rapid way when it came time in the pandemic. And so government does a lot. You know, government funds, doesn't just fund basic research, uh, you know, or um, it, it biases the tax, the corporate tax system toward encouraging innovation. And it, um, you know, university funding, blah, blah. The patent system obviously is very important. So big corporate labs are also really important. And I think that um, we under this is a really underrated segment. I think a lot of progressives talk about the power of government and a lot of, you know, conservatives and libertarians talk about the power of the sort of independent entrepreneur. Um, so then, but, uh, but I think that um, what very few people talk about is corporate labs. So if you look at the, the, in, the, um, uh, transistor, the semiconductor revolution that came out of Bell Labs, right? As did so many other major innovations. Xerox Park created a lot of fundamental technologies of the internet. And now when we look at AI, we see, okay, well, OpenAI created LLMs and all this stuff, but the paper, all you need is attention that inspired LLMs and that created the, the actual fundamental underlying technology of LLMs. Where did that come out of? Come out of like Google? Google, I forget which division of Google, but it was a Google funded lab, it was a big corporate lab. And Google 
publishes so many papers in AI that they publish more papers in AI than any major university and possibly any two major universities. And they are the engine of scientific publishing and they funded this all through their monopoly profits from their search monopoly, right? Um, and they funded this all through their, the profits from their search monopoly. And, um, and so I think that when you, when you look at um, uh, the engines of innovation, there's multiple ones. When you look at DARPA, right? That's another government thing, but it's not basic research, right? It's not the top of the funnel. It's actually near the bottom of the funnel, like, um, you know, DARPA creating lots of really usable, uh, usable products um, that then get commercialized and then get spun off, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so I think that we need an all hands on deck approach um, to innovation. We need the government doing various things. We need large corporate labs. And of course we need startups, uh, both independent, you know, bootstrapped and VC funded startups and independent tinkers and hobbyists and things like that. The, the, the problem of innovation is so hard to solve. This fact that there's not enough incentives for innovation, that we need to deploy incentives across a broad range of society. For a VC funded startup, the incentive is money, you know, get rich so you can do whatever rich people now do, have a private jet. Um, you know, th that is the incentive for, uh, for, for, you know, venture funded startup people. But for scientists, the incentive is to have everyone think you're smart, publish a bunch of papers, go to a bunch of conferences, get a Nobel prize, whatever, like have everyone think you're the smartest person. And then um, for people in big corporate labs, there's other incentives too. Um, often they want to feel smart, you know, as well. But then there's, uh, there's lots of incentives for the people who are publishing AI papers at Google besides money, although they get paid well. Uh, so it's, we need to deploy incentives across a broad range of society, right? DARPA people want to help the country. They want to make America strong. It's nationalism, right? So we've got nationalism, intelligence, scientific ego. Um, we've got uh, money and all kinds of things like all these incentives. And that we need all these incentives to overcome the basic incentive problem of innovation of technology, because without all those incentives, we're, we're going to just not do as well as we could. And that's, that's a place I disagree with, with, I wouldn't say I disagree with Mark. I, I, I agree with his valorization of the independent inventor sort of VC funded startup model. I think that's great. You know, um, I know a lot of great, awesome examples of that pushing forward innovation. I know lots of examples of stuff pushing forward innovation from other sectors of society. And I think we need to have an eclectic approach where we use everything. So that's one, one uh, place I, I sort of disagree with Mark, um, at least in focus, right? Another place I disagree with Mark is about, and, and I'm not 100% sure I disagree with him because I think if I really pushed him, he'd agree with me. He just sounds like he disagrees in his manifesto, but I think the idea of sustainability. I think he's right that we have seen a number of people who just are mad that someone out there is getting rich, try to use sustainability as reasons to reduce the number of people who get rich. We've seen a lot of status anxiety from a lot of, of people like using the idea, the idea of sustainability as a reason to degrow the economy, to slow down economic growth, to abolish capitalism and blah, blah, blah. We've seen that and that's bad, right? That's, that's not good for society. Having status anxiety make us all poorer. We don't want that, right? We want a society that makes us all richer and where people get over their status anxiety and like find other ways to think that they're good, uh, you know? But, but anyway, um, so he's right about that, but actual sustainability is incredibly important and someone needs to be on that, right? Someone like we need people to really get on that because if we, if we simply burn our whole endowment, if we simply use up our whole endowment that nature has gifted us and that's it. And then we're done in a hundred years, right? We just extract, extract, extract with their same old machinery, which is what the Soviet Union did. And then we're done. We're like, okay, that's done. That was a nice party. Now we'll go back to being apes. Like, come on, no, let's not do that. Let's, you know, technology creates sustainability. Innovation goes toward making innovation sustainable. And it doesn't always do that enough because people are short-termist, right? Like most people are not sitting around thinking, I'd like to make the world a better place for my great, 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 grandchildren on another planet. A few people think of like that. Most people don't think like that. And so 
society is naturally short-termist because of the generational problem. When I die, my grandkid is not me. And so I'm not considering, no one's thinking of the grandkids. No one's thinking of the great grandkids. Like maybe people are thinking of them a tiny, tiny bit, but not enough. We are short-termist beings. It's like we're running our whole society just based on quarterly earnings. And that's natural, right? It's natural from the fact that we have limited lifespans. Uh, you know, our limited lifespans make us short-termists. But the generations to come, the, the you know, centuries and centuries of humanity to come are important too. Those future potential people, their, their happiness, their experience of the world will be important. And, you know, we need mechanisms to make our society less short-termist. That is what sustainability is ultimately about. You know, it's, it's, it's not ultimately about like degrowth or some, you know, bullshit theory about how like we have to return to like $10,000 of per capita GDP or impoverish ourselves or we'll destroy the planet. No, we've got to innovate more, right? And Mark talks about make, doing more with less and how that's a fundamental part of innovation. He's absolutely right about that. And we must accelerate that kind of innovation. That kind of innovation is doubly underinvested in. It's an underinvested in for the reason all technology is underinvested in because there's not enough, uh, you don't capture the full benefits. There's that externality. To begin with, on top of that, there's the short-termism problem. We underinvest in technology and we under-underinvest in, um, we double underinvest in sustainability technology because of the short-termism problem. So we need to be attacking that short-termism problem by pouring extra, extra resources into things that will benefit our great-great-grandchildren right? We, to, to cancel out our natural short-sightedness and short-termists of our limited lifespan. That's a good overview. One way I'd sort of phrase Mark's ar ar argument is it, it's not only, or, or uh, not even more so that it's about the kind of lone individual versus the state, um, but really I think he, he, he sees the market as sort of simulating the sort of like Darwinian, you know, natural selection environment where the, the solutions that work rise to the top and the solutions that don't work uh, fail. And thus we have this kind of iterated game that leads to the best outcomes. And he feels that um, organizations that are not, uh, don't have the market environment, don't have those same competitive pressures. And thus we don't get the best solutions. Um, and in fact, we get, you know, sort of worse solutions that kind of, uh, you know, metastasize. Um, and I, I think this is what he sees the, the nonprofit, you know, uh, w world or the or the government world as, you know, hmm. um, someone once said something like markets sometimes have market failures, I, you know, externalities, but government programs always have mark, you know, externalities that, that, that are not baked in. And so he would love to see uh, education, uh, maybe healthcare, other things that are in the realm of, of government have those same accountability, you know, me measures so that we get better, um, outcomes. Um, what, what would you say to that? Uh, I would say that if you look at history, you see that, uh, we have consistently, um, experimented and crossed the river by feeling the stones. And there's massive amounts of economic evidence that universal public education was a big, uh, huge, huge improvement on a world where, education was a pure commodity that just rich people would buy for their kids, uh, that it massively increased productivity and had lots of spillover benefits and blah, blah, blah. Um, the whole reason you were able to have factories is because you had someone teaching the people to read. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that that I won't go into right now, but, but the point is we, we determined like that the rich societies were the ones that had public education, publicly funded infrastructure, uh, often funded for the purpose of, of national defense actually, or war was uh, incredibly important. And the, the infrastructure systems of countries that considered national defense and that um, you know, publicly funded their infrastructure were much more efficient and just much better, created much bigger network effects than the infrastructure systems of countries where it was just a private thing. You, know, you would just let people build stuff and then charge tolls. Uh, and of course, this is true for the, the, the digital infrastructure as well. You know, the inf basic infrastructure, the internet, we heavily promoted that with the government. Um, and the countries that have heavily promoted that have just done a bit better. And so that doesn't mean you want to do everything through the government, obviously, <laughs> but it means that sometimes you do and experimentation is important. So sometimes you experiment with having the government do things. For example, um, Japan had the government build these amazing train systems and then found that they weren't really returning the money. They weren't really creating as much value. Uh, 
you know, for the, for the state as, as they wanted. So they privatized them. And so then a bunch of private companies bought the Japanese uh, train system. Um, and then they built a whole bunch of stores around the train stations because they bought that real estate and they did real estate development to supplement the income from trains. And they found out that the financial returns were great. And so the privatized train system worked really well. Uh, you know, the government built it originally because the government was responsible for sort of determining the right of way and eminent domaining all the land and blah, 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 and defeating all the NIMBYs. If there were any NIMBYs, the government did that. And then, the, and then later it privatized and the privatization worked well. So sometimes private works better. Sometimes government works better. And often it's a combination of the two that works. Um, and so you just have to figure out what works better and be agnostic about this and figure out what you know, in, increases productivity, what enables technolo technology innovation instead of pre-committing to an ideological idea. And I think that Americans are becoming more pragmatic. We are leaving, starting to leave behind the idea of government versus private sector. Many people obviously still have this idea, but I think that most people are beginning to have a more nuanced idea where, uh, and you can see this in things like the Yimby movement, um, the idea that Yimbys support both housing deregulation and public housing. It's like, because ultimately they just want the housing. They want the thing. Get me the, the result. Don't, don't think so hard about like the, the, you know, getting the right kind of procedure for getting the thing. Don't be so proceduralist because ultimately saying government is better or private sector is better is proceduralist. It's like, I don't inherently care about either of those things. I inherently care about the things they produce. The, the, the results, the benefits, give me the benefits, give me the housing, give me the transportation, give me the energy, give me the cool gadgets, give me the, you know, life, you know, life-saving medicine, give me the things. Don't give me a way to get the things, give me the things. And I think that that focus on results instead of procedure, it, you know, younger Americans and many Americans are moving in that direction, not just younger Americans, but Americans in general move. And that's good. That's a good thing. We need to cast off this old idea of this one set procedure that we need to do to get to accelerate technological progress and understand that what we need to do is, is focus on the goal. I, uh, I think that might be a good place to, uh, to, 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 to wrap any, any, any last thoughts here that we, we didn't yet get to, or, or a closing statement on, uh, sort of the manifesto or techno optimism more broadly or anything we discussed. Oh, I think, um, no, I mean, you know, I think that this, we are entering a techno-optimist period, uh, I would like to say, and that that began with the success of mRNA vaccines and the success of solar power. And if you look at what's making Americans more techno-optimistic, it's not the latest phone app. Sometimes it's like chat GPT, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's stuff, you know, it's things that produce tangible benefits for people. That's what's making people more techno-optimist. That's the hook, right? That's the, that's the thread to pull to, to get people to re-embrace and to love technology again is concrete benefits that they get. And we're starting to get more technologies that obviously, obviously make people's lives better in very clearly unambiguous ways. And that's great right? We have vaccines against malaria and cancer, right? Vaccines against cancer. That's so cool. Like, um, there'll be a time when cancer was this dread, like, oh my God, I got this scan and there's a little lump on the thing. I'm going to die now. I'm going to, my life is cancer life from now on. I'm dead. It's huge. It's a terror that so many people in our society have. Imagine if you get a vaccine and then you walk around and you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's a little cancer. We'll clear that up with some, with some immunotherapy. Um, that would be an amazing future, right? A future where robots just follow you around and clean your house for you. Like in the Jetsons, we're finally going to get the Jetsons future, right? Or, or like quadcopters will be our flying cars. And then we're finally going to get that future, right? A future where technology allows you to live wherever you want and work whenever you want, wherever you want, for whoever you want. That's really tangible benefits that we're going to get from, from those technologies or, 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 you know, LLMs, you know, technology where you can just like have LLMs, like write you an email, sift through paperwork, go through all this, you know, like your, your, uh, leasing agreement for your, whatever, like just parse that and, and do all the legal crap. And like, that's going to be hugely tangible benefits. So I think that we're now in an era where technology is going to just produce so many tangible benefits for people 
that it, it won't seem like something that's just like, uh, you know, oh, I guess some guys created a slightly different chat app and became billionaires. Woohoo! Yay. It's like, that was, you know, innovation in like 2013. I don't think that's going to be innovation in, in 2023. Well, let's, uh, l l l l let's wrap on that. Uh, no, this is great. Uh, great conversation. And until next time, as always, until next time. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together.